We're going to begin a new series today out of the book of Proverbs. Uh, Yes, we will take a break for the Christmas holidays, of course. But uh, in the meantime, here we are, God's wisdom for living. Let's stand together as we read from Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Wisdom for living. The human author of the Old Testament book of Proverbs primarily was Solomon. Uh, The visit of the queen of Sheba, which most scholars associate with modern day human Uh, was prompted because she heard the wisdom of Solomon, but she wasn't alone. Uh, That was in 2 Chronicles 9. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 says that all the kings of the earth heard of his wisdom. And people visited Solomon to hear his wisdom, and then they went home and told everybody about what they had heard. It was uh, an incredible uh, way of spreading the news of Solomon and his wisdom. But Jesus said this about that. Encounter in Luke chapter 11 and verse 31, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. That was Jesus. You see, when Solomon was a child, he had an encounter with that one who was greater than Solomon. And in that vision, he was given the opportunity of asking for whatever he wanted, and he asked for wisdom. And this, of course, greatly pleased the Lord, so he gave him not only wisdom, but he gave him power and wealth as well, uh, the Bible says, beyond all of those uh, who had been in Jerusalem, either before or since. But a greater than Solomon is coming. Uh, Solomon had his wealth, Solomon had his wisdom, uh, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So as this book was written, it was like all of the other scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit so that Solomon's already vast treasure trove of wisdom then was empowered by the Spirit of God so that his Proverbs, which comprised the bulk of the book, then were put together exactly as the Holy Spirit intended. There were at least two other contributing authors Uh, A guy named Agur, whom we know very little about, and Lemuel, again, who we know very little about. Uh, But overwhelmingly, they are the words of Solomon, inspired by the Spirit, and then later compiled and arranged under his supervision during the reign of a king named Hezekiah, who commissioned the scribes to put them all together. So that what we have before us, it wasn't like Solomon, like many other cases in Scripture, would sit down inspired by the Spirit and write these out. No, these were Proverbs. They were carefully preserved. But then they were arranged many years later so that they were both spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then recorded and arranged under the ministry and leadership of the Holy Spirit. We have then God's inspired book of wisdom. His introduction tells us that he has before him the goal of knowing wisdom and understanding and to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment. 
In today's world, our educational efforts are uh, supposed to be uh, kind of value neutral. That's the goal. We want to just convey information. But of course, we as a, as a culture, we as a country, and I'm sure any other country around the world, uh, we're really not capable of providing a completely value-free education. And those of you who've gone through education, those of you who are going through it now, know that it really doesn't matter what the course of study is, what the class is, whether it's kindergarten or graduate studies. You are likely to also hear, along with the instruction, a lot of ideas and opinions that belong to the teacher, such as the way of education. We're not really good enough, I think, to withhold everything about us, whether good or bad. And listen, while we might lament the, the bad ways that that happens, aren't you thankful we've got a lot of Christians in the public school system? And their values, therefore, and ideas are going to come through as well. Well, Solomon makes no claim whatsoever to offering instruction and understanding without a corresponding application of justice. And when he speaks of knowing justice, he intends for his audience to know what is right and what is wrong. That's what justice is all about. So there was no presumptuousness on his part, no idea about a value-free education. I want to give you wisdom. I want to give you instruction. And in the meantime, I'm also going to give you a lot about justice so that you will get information then about what God says is right and what God God says is wrong. And not only that, but there is also judgment. So that along the way, he's also going to instill in his learners the ability to discern, to understand, to look at a complex or complicated situation then and determine from that, make judgment about it, what is a good path to follow or what is a bad path to follow. So that not only will they get instruction what is right and wrong, but they'll get instruction then about understanding. So they get wisdom and judgment, being able to discern the difference and make good choices. In this way, the book of Proverbs, as in fact the whole Bible does, slashes across modern humanity's obsession with moral relativism. Moral relativism is nothing new. It's been around, arguably, since the Garden of Eden. Uh, but it especially came to light in the book of Judges, where the Bible says repeatedly, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is moral relativism. We'll not respect the, the law. We'll not respect tradition. We'll not respect uh, the things that are taught us from others. We certainly do not acknowledge God's authority to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. It ended catastrophically, by the way, in the book of Judges. It's going to end catastrophically in today's world as well. But against all of that, we stand as Bible-believing people. We believe God has revealed His Word to us, His truth to us. And that Word then, the Bible, is authoritative, that God does indeed tell us what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And we're able to discern uh, then about life and living based on our understanding of biblical truth. You see, in the days of Solomon, there was a king in Israel, and he was given wisdom and understanding by God himself. Now, even that, I must hasten to say, 
did not make Solomon immune from doing stupid stuff. Things that, interestingly, the Bible says, radiated from his heart and not his mind. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, it says this, For it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as with the heart of David his father. What a tragedy it is for a man to live his whole life in understanding and in wisdom. And then when he gets old, he loses his mind. Because his wives, and he had a lot of wives, had turned away his heart's heart to idolatry so that his heart wasn't right with God. But the book of Proverbs was written during that time when Solomon was still following God and still serving God. And though he was not perfect, no human, merely human being is ever perfect. Remember, we deal, thank God, for the one who is greater than Solomon. Because he had all the wisdom, he had all the knowledge, and he lived it all out perfectly. We never have to apologize for Jesus. Never have to say, well, you know, he did good, except for that one time. No. Mm -mm. Uh, Jesus was the perfect junction between God's wisdom and God's grace, God's truth, and, and the kind of way that we, or the kind of life that we live. Uh, so God would use Solomon, though, to write this great book of wisdom for the ages, and we're going to spend some time considering its truth. He would say earlier in Proverbs chapter 1 to give prudence to the simple. This is why he wrote to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Uh, in this way Solomon leaps into the task of giving God's wisdom. From the beginning then he addresses himself to the simple. Now to be simple in this context is not an insult. It simply refers to one who is uninstructed, inexperienced, somewhat naive, innocent we might even call it, and therefore seeking to understand. They're interested, they're eager to learn. And he addresses the fact that such people need instruction and they need discretion from a person devoted to wisdom. And that was his goal. There would, of course, be those who would refuse to listen, whose minds were closed to wise counsel of all kinds, regardless of where it came from, even from the Lord himself. There would be those who would listen with careful, uh, carefully disguised skepticism, sometimes not so carefully disguised. But Solomon would waste little time with such people. Over and over, the Bible calls those who would not listen, who would not hear or heed instruction Fools. Fools. Solomon had no time, no patience with that. He embarks then on his mission of instruction by calling or appealing to the simple. Uh, those who are eager to learn. Those who are uninstructed. Innocent. Their minds were like blank pages waiting to be written on. And their lives, Solomon knew, were up for grabs. With his great understanding, he knew the pressures that would be brought upon them through the voices competing to give them truth to live by. 
This problem has not gone away, and in fact, it has intensified in our culture today. Generation after generation must make the same choices. They must make the same decisions. They must learn the same things. Uh, We're not born into this world uh, with a a preloaded hard drive full of all the information that we need to learn. No, we have to learn it, and we all have to learn it, exactly like all of the generations that have come before us. Uh, What is amazing as we read through this ancient text in the book of Proverbs is how accurately Solomon speaks to the choices that still must be made by modern generations, yes, by you and I even today. In this information age, we might think that innocence and naivety would have perished from the earth, but that's not the case. Wherever there is an open mind combined with innocence or even simplicity of youth and the desire to learn, we must understand that a battle will rage for that mind and that heart and that life. Wherever a mind is open, wherever there are things still to be learned, choices to be made, decisions to be made about what is right and wrong, a battle will be waged for that mind and that heart and that life. And so in our text this morning, it is intriguing to see out of all of the potential things that Solomon might have brought up to begin his book with, isn't it interesting that he sets before his audience a very simple but a profound choice, parents or peers. Parents or peers. Will we listen to our parents or will we listen to our peers? And so we'll just jump right in this this morning because he begins by talking about parental wisdom. Here he says, the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Uh, what he says by this, it'll be like a crown on your head and like a, a beautiful uh, chain that you hang around your neck. These are things that look good on you, and you wear them because they increase your attractiveness. It looks good when you heed the instruction of your father and when you do not forsake uh, the law of your mother. Remember that the first commandment God gave with promise was to honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now Solomon uses two different words in verse 8. The word instruction speaks of discipline or correction. Discipline or correction. Yes, it is instruction. But it is an instruction that is rooted in discipline and correction. Then he speaks of the law of your mothers. And here he speaks of the law that refers to instruction or direction. Direction. Uh, The law of your mother. And perhaps these two roles define for us very clearly... These two words rather define for us the roles that parents would feel in teaching their children. So that the father will give wisdom with a tendency toward correction and discipline. 
I'm going to say that again. The Father will give instruction with a tendency toward correction and discipline. While the mother would give wisdom with a tendency toward instruction and direction. As such, fathers then would be more inclined, according to Solomon, toward correcting what is wrong. While the mothers would be more inclined toward teaching and directing them and nurturing them in what they need to do. One writer compared that to a battery that has both a negative and a positive. And in order for the power to flow out of that battery, you have to have both. It has to have a negative side and a positive side. So that the wisdom that we receive from our parents, and this is where this whole book starts. The wisdom then that we would receive from our parents would come to us with a flow of a negative side in a way, tending toward correction and discipline, and a positive side, tending toward direction. We need both. This influence then, when accepted, looks very good. And I want to tell you right now, this morning, as I'm, I'm preaching this message here at our church, And it is such a blessing to me when I get around so many of our young children around this church and see them behaving respectfully and obediently. And to see them say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and please, and thank you. (laughs) If your kids are doing that, keep up the good work. It looks good on them, and it looks good on their parents. I remember the first time I heard an adult correct one of my children for saying sir to them. Oh, I tell you, I had to kind of get a hold of myself a little bit because I was going to respond with a little bit of hostility. I'm going to tell you, I hope I did graciously when I said, no, I have taught my children to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. We've worked very hard on this. And we want that to continue. One of the most frightening aspects of our culture today is the fact that we're now raising a third and fourth generation uh, where there's no fear of the Lord in their home. And no divine source of wisdom to be brought to them. It is terrible when children grow up in broken homes and become the product of dysfunctional families. And you may think that I'm talking about divorce, and I am to a degree, but that's only part of it. You see, families can become dysfunctional whenever God's plan is ignored. Whenever God's plan is ignored. And if fathers then are not the spiritual leaders of their family so that they could provide a wisdom with an emphasis on correction and discipline as God intends... Uh, then the mother then becomes the one who has almost whole complete responsibility for the nurturing and direction of the children. And we tend then, if we're not careful, to leave out that strong emphasis on correction and discipline. 
as spiritual leaders in one of the Lord's churches, we are here to try to help you. We see a lot of single moms in our family, in our church family, and we know what you're going through. And when you need help, we'll try to help you all that we can. But you understand the challenge that is before you when you look at this passage where God intends for his wisdom to be communicated from a father with an emphasis on correction and discipline and from a mother with an emphasis on nurturing and direction. When those two work together as God intends, when you have then a group of people who understand that the a family rather, uh, who understands that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and you've got parents and a family structure that has it right, then the rest of it can continue and pass along then to children and from them to grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I bring to your attention the, the words of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, verse 7, uh, where the writer says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? We call that a rhetorical question. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? And in the days when this passage was written, the writer of the book of Hebrews was asking that rhetorical question. And you know a rhetorical question is one that demands an obvious answer. And the obvious answer is, there's not any. There's not any. That, that was true in the days when the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote this epistle. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? Uh, but if you're without chastening, of which, uh, of which all are, have become takers, then are you illegitimate and not sons. And that is that the only way this would happen was for a child to be a part of a family, but he was uh, not the child of a father, and therefore the father won't discipline him because he's not his. But if you are the true offspring of your father, the writer of the book of Hebrews would say, then your father will provide you with chastening and discipline. What a world we live in today. What a world. The problem of absentee dads, of fathers who have no interest in being a father or a dad, the problem is of catastrophic proportions. In our culture today. The writer of Hebrews goes on. Verse 9. Furthermore we've had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Uh, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits. And live for they indeed for a few days chastened us. As seemed best to them. But he for our profit. That we may be partakers of his holiness. Within this kind of framework. This Perspective of where we live today in our American culture, it makes the role of spiritual leaders so vital. And we all need to understand that. And so he introduces us then to the parental voices who will offer us wisdom with both a positive side and the emphasis of nurturing and directing and also a negative side with the influence of corrective measures and discipline and by heeding that you'll have a crown on your head and a beautiful chain around your neck but of course along with the parental wisdom there are also peer voices 
My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. The enticing voice appears. Notice the plurality. If sinners entice you. Uh, whether organized gangs or disorganized groups, Solomon knew that his sons would hear the voice of those who would call them to forsake wisdom, to forsake God's truth, to turn away from their parents and all of their ideas and ideals of what is wrong and, wrong and, and what is right. So that it isn't necessary then for us to think necessarily about what you're being enticed to do as it is what you're being enticed to abandon. And what you're being enticed to abandon, what you will be enticed to abandon, is to abandon uh, your parents and their truth. And I guess perhaps it is uh, rather common for children to get to the place where they think their parents are the mutual enemy to all things fun in life as you want to live it. And after all, kids crave social interaction. Don't think for a moment the enemy doesn't know it. He does, and he exploits it. We crave social interaction. We need a crowd to hang around with. And there is a sinful crowd. They seem to be having a lot of fun. And they are very bold and very loud. Far more bold and far more loud than the righteous crowd calling you to live for God. There are these sinful voices calling you to throw off all restraint. Forget about what your parents say. And I have to say, sometimes the parents of these sinful groups are going along with what their kids are calling you to do, and in fact, enabling them in their lifestyle choices. Solomon makes a big point when he calls them sinners. And let's make this very plain this morning. When a call comes to a naive and innocent boy or girl to abandon the teaching and discipline of their parents, this is not an innocent voice. When a call comes to abandon the teaching of your parents and the truth, this call is not innocent. No righteous or godly person would call on you to abandon the teaching of your wisdom, the, the wisdom of your parents, to abandon them. That's not a godly voice. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 11 then jumps to it. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We might think that Solomon would have kind of worked up to that a little bit. That he might have held murder off for a while. If this sinful people, this group of people is calling on you to... To, to work violence, to attack people, to rob and kill and plunder at will. If, if you have people who are calling you like that, we might expect him to go with something a little nicer. Maybe uh, uh, if, if they're enticing you to throw a temper tantrum or two. or uh, Maybe they're enticing you to do a little shoplifting or, 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 or maybe smoke something you shouldn't be smoking. And you shouldn't be smoking anything, by the way. But maybe smoke something out in the backwoods somewhere. But no, he, he jumps straight into it. 
One writer pointed out that sin needs no process of evolution. It leaps full grown into our experience. And remember the very first family that ever existed had a man in it who murdered his own brother and then threw his insolence into the face of God himself. Sin comes on the scene full grown. And Solomon acknowledged that. The proposition, they propose a time of violence and bloodshed and death when young people can cast restraint to the winds and move in random acts of bloodshed. This is not that far removed from America today. I grew up rather fascinated by Bonnie and Clyde. That sounds a little odd. I know that's out of the far realms of something. Uh, But I was. Uh, Part of that was because we went to the Louisiana State Fair every year. And the car that Bonnie and Clyde was killed in was on display. Or at least they told us that was it. I think it was it. Probably was it. Maybe not it. But anyway, they, they... it's kind of like the internet. Don't, don't, you didn't trust everything folks at the fair told you, but uh, they, they told us that's what it was. And man, I looked at all that, and my daddy told me the story how they were killed not far away. And, and then when I got the chance, and I had to sneak around to do that, and even then it was the cleaned-up version on TV, not the one you went to see in the theaters. And those of you who remember how they used to clean up movies so you could watch them on TV know what I'm talking about. But then I had, even then I had to sneak around to watch it. Uh, Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. It was a glamorized and romanticized version of those people devoted to death, Today's gaming culture is immersed in random acts of violence. All of them aggrandizing bloodshed. The higher the body count, the better. Little wonder that random acts of violence and murder have become so common these days. And they're playing out in streets all over our country. As these people then are often raised without a father and mother at all who know anything about God's wisdom and so they can't put it on them and those open minds and open hearts then are quickly lured into the voices of their peers not innocent voices and they're leading them right down the road that Solomon describes in verse 18, he says, They lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. You see, these, these people, their peers, uh, probably don't even know themselves how dangerous their lifestyle really is. We even have a word for that. We call it being bulletproof, where a young man thinks that he can involve himself, or even a young girl thinks that he can involve, she can involve herself in all kinds of dangerous things, but it's never going to happen to them. It's gonna, somebody else might get it. They were stupid. Uh, it's never going to happen to me. I'm bulletproof. But they're not. They've been lured into a dangerous and life-threatening lifestyle. And Solomon says that they wait for their own blood. How does it play out in our world? See if this sounds familiar. Here's a group of kids. And they start hanging out. 
and running around together. When they start going astray, the first thing they do is they start covering up for one another and lying for one another. To their parents, of course, who are their mutual enemies, of all things they want to do that's fun and helpful and all these things, these are my friends. <laughs> these are my friends. And they might not think of themselves as a gang, but uh, don't mistake, they do have their own initiation. <laughs> there's, a, there's a price you have to pay to get in with the group. And a lot of times the first way that that is going to play out is that you're going to have to go against what your parents have taught you. So they're running around together. They're covering up for one another. They begin to go through their initiation rituals. First it's smoking. Next it's drinking. Maybe it's doing drugs and partying. Then the parties progress as they always do. And it isn't long until somebody's busted. It isn't long until somebody's pregnant. And it isn't long until somebody's dead. And that scenario plays out in this city over and over and over and over and over. And so God puts before you a simple proposal. Parents or peers. Parents or peers. And young people, if you've got godly parents, and I don't mean to say by that, that if you have perfect parents, your parents aren't perfect. But they can be godly because the Bible talks about being godly all over the Scriptures, all over the Old Testament and New Testament. You'll find people who are godly, people who are righteous. They're devoted to God. They're devoted to biblical truth. They may not always do everything the Bible says, but they know that the Bible is always right. They lead you then in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. They take their job as parents very, very seriously. And you, young people, have a choice to make. Parents or peers. I would like to say that the influence of peer group has never been more powerful than it is today. But I can't say that. What I can say is that the influence of peer group has risen to a whole different level through the internet, social media, and the fact that nonstop you have this always around. You can't disconnect from it. And for every five minutes you'll spend in conversation with your parents on any given day. Only God knows and your ISP provider how many minutes you spend listening to your peers. Parents or peers. 
You say, well, Brother Rich, how do, how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, I'll talk to the parents and grandparents in the group, and I'll in- include us both in that. And though you may have gotten your kids already raised, you haven't raised your grandkids yet. And sometimes it might be your role as a grandfather and a grandmother then to provide that wisdom and instruction. Don't be afraid. Don't hesitate. You need it. They, they need it. Your kids, your grandkids still need to hear the voice of wisdom. The parents especially. Devote yourself to giving your kids wisdom. Don't compromise your moral authority. Invest in living a life before them and teaching them. And then kids, listen to your parents. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long upon the earth. Let's stand together, please.